1: You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway.
0: Imran Khan is the rightful Prime Minister of Pakistan, a country of nearly 300 million people and lots of nuclear weapons to boot, and situated in one of the most geostrategically sensitive areas of the entire world, with a border with Iran, with a border with Afghanistan, with an ironclad relationship with China. The Prime Minister was removed in a U.S regime change operation the day that he was in moscow signing a deal with president putin for advantageous supply of both energy and foodstuffs it was as clear as a regime change operation as i've ever seen and i've been watching them for 50 whole years Imran Khan is a friend of mine, but I'm not his party man. I never supported the PTI. And in an election, if I was a Pakistani, in the past at least, he would not have got my vote. But because I recognize when the US long arm of regime change operations is at work, I immediately swung behind the rightful and legitimate prime minister. This judgment was buttressed by the fact that the only people that the Americans could find to put in Imran Khan's stead were the sweepings of the police gazette floor. The front page of the wanted list was placed in power. Virtually every cabinet minister that the Americans put in power in Islamabad was wanted for high crimes and misdemeanors, usually involving the absconding of large sums of public money and the corrupt workings of a long and deeply corrupt Pakistani political class. I was buttressed also by an important fact that I have to mention. My conclusion that this was an American operation and that the new government of Pakistan was entirely legitimate, was buttressed by the absolute silence from my former friends. You see, although I was never close to Imran Khan, I was for more than 30 years at the side of the slain martyr, Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. Indeed, I campaigned to save the life of her father, the martyr Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. I cradled the baby Bilawal Bhutto, now the foreign minister in the American government in Islamabad. In my arms, as a baby, I carried him around as a toddler. I was one of his mother's closest friends. None of them, none of them have been in touch with me to complain or to explain why I was wrong about my conclusion. A voluble, eloquent statement that I was right because they at least have shown me the respect of knowing that they couldn't pull the wool over my eyes. If they thought they could, they'd have been on the phone saying, you've got this completely wrong, but my phone has been silent. And of course, people ask me one comrade of mine asked me today, well, why would the Americans want this regime change operation? The answer is this. They want Pakistan to be a reliable base for them, as it was throughout the United the 1980s in their attempt to destabilize and, if possible, regime change Kabul and Afghanistan. They want to use Pakistan as a tool to help destabilize Russia's near abroad in Central Asia and, if possible, They want to break that ironclad relationship between Pakistan and China. That's why they need a pliant government in Islamabad. And they did not regard Imran Khan, given his dalliance with Moscow, as being pliant enough. Now, I'm not saying that everything Imran Khan Khan says is correct. I'm not saying that anything that he is proposing is necessarily the right thing, the right way forward. In fact, I have several criticisms of the revolution that he is now leading. The principal one is this, in the words of the French revolutionary Saint-Just, he who half makes a revolution is digging his own grave. And if Imran Khan thinks that he can rouse tens of millions of the poorest Pakistanis, of the Pakistani masses for the revolutionary overthrow of a stooge regime and then go back to business as usual, operating the same discredited institutions that they keep talking about in Pakistan and preserving the corrupt class relationships that exist in Pakistan, then he is digging his own grave either the enemy will kill him before he gets there or the masses will turn on him in their disillusionment having roused them having brought them onto the streets in unprecedented numbers Imran Khan will have to deliver something to the poor masses of Pakistan and for that he'll have to shed the illusions in the Patemkin parliamentary system bestowed on Pakistan by the British colonizers 75, 80 years ago. He will have to shake himself from the illusion that the Pakistani courts are anything but a fig leaf for the naked dictatorship of that other institution whose name they are almost always afraid to speak. I refer, of course, to the army anyone who thinks they can make revolutionary change in Pakistan whilst leaving an army that is bought and paid for by the United States of America in power, in pole position, is digging their own grave. This mistake was made in the 1970s. They should have been swept away. A people's army like the Chinese People's Liberation Army should have been introduced In Pakistan. It's time to tear the ill-gotten gold braid from the general class in Pakistan and send them homewards, preferably into well-upholstered exile. A complete change upside down has to occur in Pakistan if meaningful change is to occur. But let's return to the president. The present now is this, Imran Khan has bullets in his leg atop a trailer, a container. It was all so redolent to me. I spoke to the late Benazir Bhutto the very night before she left Dubai to return to Pakistan on her ill-fated Via Dolorosa, which led to her crucifixion. At the hands of of the very same armed forces that are behind the murder attempt on Imran Khan this week. I begged her not to go if you want to know the truth, but she was determined to face what she must have known was her fate, the fate suffered by her father, the fate suffered by two of her brothers. And I pray to God, none other in her Family. She must have known that she was going into the valley of death. But she went. And I had the same sense of foreboding when I saw Imran Khan on top of that container. And when I saw the man draw his weapon and fire his bullets, which killed one, wounded many, and put four bullets in the leg of Imran Khan, I was filled with dread. Although the slow crucifixion of Imran Khan is not completed yet, although the Pharisees in this picture are the local hirelings that the U.S. has put in power, the Romans in this picture are in Washington, D.C. The responsibility for the attempt to murder Imran Khan lies in Washington, D.C. I'll take your calls on these matters, of course, I realise that what I'm saying is contentious. I realise that it's not over yet, that Imran Khan's long march continues. I realise that this may not be the last attempt on his life. But I caution him thus if he is watching. Don't be dishonest with the people. Don't pretend to them that there's any easy walk to freedom. The thousands that besieged the army headquarters in Ropindi in the last couple of days will have to become millions. These generals will have to know that if they fire upon the people, that the people will tear them limb from limb. These generals need to know, and the ordinary jawan needs to know, that this revolution has become unstoppable, that there will be no return To the status quo ante of corrupt oligarchies ruling the roost in Pakistan, whoever is in the prime minister's house with the ultimate arbiter being the chief of the army staff. It's time to sweep all of this away. Now, talking about Washington, Joe Biden is facing the trial of his life, though he almost certainly doesn't know it. He may not even know what day it is or where he is. But on Tuesday, the people of the United States of America seem poised to deliver a verdict which is thoroughly deserved on the so-called Democratic so-called party and the administration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. If I were an American... I'd be staying at home on Tuesday. I'm not going to go so far as to ask people to vote for the Republican candidate, but we have to stop the war. And Joe Biden is taking the whole world helter-skelter down, down, down towards the hell of a thermonuclear exchange of weapons over Ukraine. And for that matter, steaming into more and more trouble in the Taiwan Straits, in the South China Sea, in the Indo-Pacific. The crazed, unhinged idea of an America emaciated by the COVID crisis, its crisis of production, its Ponzi scheme currency, and the tectonic plates of the economy shifting towards the East, can fight and win a war against both Russia and China at the same time is so crazed, so unhinged, it belongs on the set of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And the American people are going to be required to step forward and apply what is a coupe de grace in the back of the head of the US Democratic Party. Because if they do not, all of us may die. You may think that that is an exaggeration. But this is the week in which the Pentagon admitted that American forces were now in Ukraine. Polish forces for NATO are in Ukraine in their tens of thousands. Many of them are being killed. Just look at the death notices and the passports taken from the bodies of the servicemen killed on the battlefield. NATO, Poland, and now the United States are inside the war zone. And as Kit Klarenberg again, for the grey zone again, has just revealed, the British are up to their old nefarious tricks. Perfidious Albion is at work again in the Crimea setting up what they call a partisan army to fight the Russians behind the lines, to fight against the civil administration in the Crimea, which represents well over 95% of the people there who are, of course, Russian people. Russia will never allow the Crimea to return to the discredited coup regime in Kiev. The idea that it will is a wild fantasy. The kind of wild fantasy that encouraged the charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimea 150 or more years ago. Into the guns they charged. That's exactly what the British are planning. They're ready to fight to the last Ukrainian to try and weaken, divide, slow and if possible regime change Russia. It's a fantasy, a fantasy of imperial delusion and yet it is still being indulged in London. Russia now knows that it was the British that blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Russia now knows that it was the British that led the attack on the demilitarized grain corridor in Sebastopol, Russia now knows that it was the British that attacked the civilian infrastructure of the Kerch Bridge. The British now make no attempt to hide the fact that they have de facto declared war on Russia. So far, it has been a war in only one direction. But that may well be about to change. And who could complain if it did? If Russia were now to retaliate against the British aggression, against Russian people, Russian infrastructure, German infrastructure, European Union infrastructure, who could complain? Well, the answer, of course, will be everyone will complain. They will cry foul but cry, they will. If I were in charge of Russian affairs, I could think of many ways to punish the British state for its perfidious, nefarious involvement in the Ukraine imbroglio. But because I'm British and because I seek to represent the British people, I beg Russia not to carry Out these acts. But that requires the British people to show that they oppose the role their government has chosen in the Ukrainian imbroglio. And so far that has been silent. The onrush of nuclear war has not provoked a return to life of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. CND, born in Britain, famous throughout the world, its logo, an emblem of peace throughout the world. Where are they? It has not provoked the Stop the War Coalition to shake themselves of their third campism and get out onto the streets arguing against the onrush of World War III. Where are the Stop the War Coalition? And of course, no one should have any illusion that the so-called opposition, so-called Labour Party, will do that job for them. I have so much more I want to say, but time is against me. So how about this factoid? I have just learned from James Melville, our indefatigable contributor, that COP27, that Rishi Sunak has foolishly U-turned and is now headed for Cairo, a country incidentally governed by a military dictatorship. How about that then? Is on his way to COP27, which is sponsored by Coca-Cola, a conference sponsored by the company responsible for 120 billion plastic bottles which foul the environment and the seas across the world is sponsoring COP27. You couldn't make it up. Unfortunately, you have no need to because it is entirely true. Will Elon Musk save Twitter? And I've got to tell you, Mr. Musk, It is a close-run thing. On uh, my Twitter feed, it's yes, 56%, no, 44%. On YouTube, it's yes, 41%, no, 59%. And on Telegram, usually the most perspicacious of the platforms so far as polls, it is yes, only 37%, no, 63%. We'll discuss later, I hope, what we mean by saving Twitter, because it surely needs saving. But you can get your vote in on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube. Please subscribe and like the show if you are watching on YouTube and on my Telegram. That's t.me forward slash George Galloway. So Tuesday is the big day in the United States of America. Poor Biden, Probably doesn't know that, but he's in for a rude awakening if the polls are correct. Who better to tell us if they are than the clean-cut all-American boy. He's handsome, he's cute, and he's razor sharp. He's Jackson Hinkle, the political analyst and host of The Dive, and uh, welcome returnee to the mother of all talk shows. Jackson, are the polls right are the democrats headed for defeat
2: uh yeah i mean assuming that we have a fair and free election i think that the democrats are headed for a pretty a pretty uh terrible wake up call come uh that tuesday it's going to be bad uh we we know that the american public is suffering right now when it comes to bread and butter issues when it comes to inflation the economy crime in major cities for example And all the while, the Democratic Party is doing nothing to try and help contain these issues or take a course of action that might address these issues. They're sending 60 billion dollars to Ukraine, as we all know, and they're currently preparing to send another 50 billion or more over to Ukraine, despite the fact that the American public is done with Ukraine. And they're, they're trying to also say that the problems that the American public is witnessing and living each and every day don't exist. I saw Joy and Reid go out on MSNBC just this week, and she said that the Republicans are engaging in an election front of trying to encourage or uh, educate the American public as to what inflation is, because average Americans didn't use the term inflation, presumably before the Republicans launched their midterm election campaign. So it's just really incredible to see what they're doing and the fact that they are not addressing any of the problems that average Americans are facing.
3: Well, their
0: election platform seems to be, let's send more and more of America's money to a place called Ukraine that virtually no American could identify on a map. About January six, which was a storm in a teacup, uh, it would have been a quiet afternoon on the streets of Paris uh, with the yellow vests on the street and so on. And Donald Trump, the specter of Donald Trump, that's their election platform. Nothing about prices, nothing about jobs, nothing about rents, about student debt, about, uh, about the uh, crises, multiple crises on all kinds of uh, issues that the american public
2: faces who's advising these people jackson the people advising the democratic party are the same people who are uh, you know they're they're wheeling joe biden out to have his morning cereal you know these people they they don't know what is good for the future of this country because they are not living the lives of of average americans they simply are so out of touch that they don't even understand what this country is facing right now and they're also the ones that are pushing the propaganda uh, that free speech is bad that the right to bear arms is uniquely evil that the 1776 revolution was like an anti-american project that we should all hate Uh, As Americans, you know, this is the this is this is the fabric of what we see our country to be. And these people, the globalists, are trying to unravel this fabric, tear apart this country bit by bit. And, And that's their goal at the end of the day. That's their project. They are taking cue from the World Economic Forum and from Klaus Schwab rather than listening to the concerns and the hardships of Americans all across the country who don't have any real jobs, who have lost the manufacturing base and the industrial base in this country at a time when China is lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and they're working on industrializing uh, their country and helping people in rural communities and offering to the rest of the world to join their Belt and Road Initiative, even the United States to join the Belt and Road Initiative. The United States is saying, no, we are going to, we're going to, you know, um, we're going to entrap ourselves further in this hyper financialized market uh, where everyone works a service job and everyone is working for Uber or Starbucks. And it's really just ruining our country.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's take that freedom of speech thing. Uh, I've lived so long, uh, I've got to tell you, Jackson, that uh, everything is reversed. The left that used to cry foul uh, and, uh, and, 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 decry the dogs of war, of uh, the American military industrial complex, of the FBI and the CIA. The left is now their greatest defenders and exalters. And it's the people on the right that are opposing the endless feeding of war against Russia. Uh, I've lived so long that people on the left who used to cry out, for freedom of speech and against the ability of media oligarchs to silence the public discourse now being the greatest champions of censorship so uh, musk comes along for example and says that he's going to reverse at least some of the anti-free speech policies of uh, of uh, twitter the biggest of the public squares Who's organizing the backlash? It's the so-called left, in conjunction with uh, some of America's biggest corporations who are now pulling their advertisements from uh, from Twitter. It's a funny old world,
2: as Margaret Thatcher once said. Yeah, well, I'm always of the mindset that I'll believe it when I see it. And I'd imagine you are as well. So. Elon Musk, I think that he's going to try to make a difference. I I do think he's earnest uh maybe he has mixed motives i'm sure the pentagon would be happy if every single person that's currently anonymously using twitter is verifiable and identifiable and can be placed on a blacklist much easier than previously and this whole twitter verification process is going to help them in that effort Uh, but i also think that there's benefits to this because you're going to effectively root out a lot of this troll behavior on twitter maybe take a step closer to freedom of speech on the internet i'm hopeful I have yet to see what's going to happen, but, you know, I, I don't really trust any of these people, any of these individuals in elite positions of power. I mean, you bring up uh, the Republicans and how they are fighting back against this endless war, proxy war in Ukraine that we are Uh, really digging ourselves into right now. I remember a day, and and it's not like they hide it. I mean, Barack Obama literally wrote about this in his autobiography. I remember a day when Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi were out giving speeches about how they were going to stop the funding of the war in Iraq and how it was the worst thing that we could have ever done as a country. So, as with anything, with these people who are in positions of power, I'll believe it when I see it. I'm not hopeful for you know, Kevin McCarthy to actually stay true to his word about stopping funding for Ukraine. And, I've, and I and I don't know what's going to happen with Elon Musk, but uh, wishing for the best.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I was going to turn to the Republicans. Uh, I'm not a Trump supporter uh, neither are you. Uh, neither are most people, I suspect, who are regular viewers of this show. Uh, but uh, Trump uh, started far less Uh, trouble in the world, although he did start trouble, Uh, fewer wars than than the others that went before him. And he is actually the only one of the top line political actors in the United States who is actually talking any sense about the war in Ukraine. How does Tuesday and its aftermath look for him, do you think?
2: I think it's looking really good for him moving forward. And I saw some reports that he's planning to potentially announce his uh, bid for presidency very soon. I saw some reports indicating maybe around November 14th, but we have yet to see what he's going to do. But what I do think is going to happen is you are going to have this massive, uh, you know, power grab from people within the camp of Ron DeSantis, trying to take up the donors of Donald Trump, trying to take up the supporters of Donald Trump. And I think this is what we are going to see as the major uh, power struggle in the 2024 elections. I don't think it's going to be Democrat versus Republican. I think it's going to be a fight within the Republican Party uh, as to who is going to run this country. And yeah, like, I, like you said, uh, I'm not a Trump fan. And I support the MAGA base and I think that they're great and I think that uh, they have good instincts. And I hope that they don't side with uh, Ron DeSantis, because in my view, Ron DeSantis is the greatest evil that our country faces. I mean, he is a neoconservative to his core when it comes to these foreign policy issues. And he's trying to win over Trump supporters by being populist or traditional on uh, domestic issues. But at the end of the day, we're headed towards World War Three with either Russia or China or both. We are moving into this multipolar world uh, increasingly, and we just saw this with China, with Xi Jinping and Olaf Scholz this week. The world is being sectioned off into these blocks yet again, uh, and we need a leader who is going to be the least likely of all to take us further down that path of world war. Ron DeSantis is going to take us down that path. Trump Could he? Yes. But is he less likely than Ron DeSantis? I think so. And I think that's why there's so many people in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party that are very worried about him right now.
0: Uh, Finally, and I'm grateful for your time, Jackson. Uh, uh, Once upon a time, the Democratic Party was always rotten, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I grew up under Democratic wars. Uh, being fought across the world but there was always a section of the Democratic Party that you could look to and admire I'm thinking of the Kennedys, I'm thinking of some others who were always if you like there was an anti-war rump in the Democratic Party, there was a pro-trade union rump in the Democratic Party, there was a a pro-people section of the Democratic Party. There were always the minority, but they always existed. People like uh, McCarthy and Kennedy and so on. Now, it seems an undifferentiated mass of rottenness. I can't tell you how much I despise the Democratic Party. Am I
2: going too far? No, you're not going too far. It's a It's a very accurate observation you make and you're especially right when you bring up the likes of the kennedys i mean there you have a family who um you know during john f kennedy and and robert kennedy these individuals were maybe not necessarily anti-war but they valued they valued detente they valued diplomatic relations they valued uh trying to strive for peace and they were up against very very powerful actors like the Dulles brothers for example um, it seems as though today the power structure within the party has been in entirely swamped by the ideology of Dulles brothers type figures you know uh, individuals that are beholden to the intelligence community beholden to the state department even today we look at uh, the state department versus the pentagon because i feel like there is a little bit of a um, power d- dynamic between these two entities and the pentagon is more aligned with the republican party of today the state department is more aligned with the democratic party of today the Pentagon, we're getting voices out of, like, uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who are calling for peace between Russia and Ukraine, not calling for war with China. Um, we don't have any voices in the Democratic Party that value detente, and it's a very unique point in history no other generation of american leaders would have been as pro-war regardless of the outcome as we're seeing today from the likes of joe biden william burns victoria newland anthony blinken so on and so forth and it's why i'm very worried about the future uh, of my country
0: well we had the squad but they turned into the bomb
2: squad (laughs) i like that that's true it's true i mean and, and now you see there. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the videos of uh, average Americans going out and confronting the squad at their rallies, at their speeches, uh, at campaign events. You know, people from their own districts that are taking off work to go and confront them and say, why are you funding World War Three? Why are you taking us one step closer towards nuclear annihilation? And they have nothing to say, because if they were to answer honestly, they would have to tell the public that this is just what Nancy Pelosi wants. This is just what our Democratic donors want. And I can't go against them because they are not willing to challenge power. Uh, It's it's so sad because I like I'm sure many uh, believed that individuals like AOC were maybe going to provide a a new path in the Democratic Party, an anti-war path, a peace economy, if you will, because that's what they campaigned on. But now they've just become rank tools of the establishment.
0: Jackson Hinkle, as always, great wisdom in one so young. Thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. That's Jackson Hinkle, the host of The Dive. Do check out his work and follow him on social media.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds
0: Let's go to the phone lines. First to Wales, where Richard is in Newton.
6: Go ahead, Richard. Good evening, George. Health and strength to you, my friend. Uh, Tonight... Thank you. I've got a um, a comment rather than a question. It's about my suspicion and frustrations of the lack of coverage on mainstream media about the fact that France... And Germany were guarantors to the Minsk too. Yet there's nothing. Good point. Yeah, there's nothing. there's nothing being said or told about it, and I'm so frustrated and annoyed.
0: Well it's a very good point. Nobody knows about the Minsk Agreements. Still less do they know that Germany and France guaranteed it and still less do they know that this became the property of the United Nations Security Council. How's that for a triple betrayal? The Minsk Agreement was signed by the Ukrainian regime, guaranteed by France and Germany on behalf of the EU, and then the Security Council of the United Nations took authorship or responsibility for the Minsk-2 agreements, but they were never implemented. And that's why we've got a war in Ukraine. Who knew? Well, nobody, if it was left to our gallant regiment of liars in the mainstream media. Richard, great call. Uh, Michael is in Minneapolis. He's always worth hearing. Go ahead, Michael.
7: So it's good to be on the show. So as regards to uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter, it seems like he's maybe stepped in a little bit because... He doesn't seem to know how to run it. He fired half his employees already, including a lot of the content moderation team. And now due to that, to firing all the content moderators, he's got advertisers pulling out. So I guess it seems like, you know, and and then now he wants to have people pay to get a blue check. Well, if anyone can pay to get a blue check, then it's easy to imitate other people and have names that are very close to theirs. And then all of a sudden, you know being verified on Twitter doesn't mean anything and I just think like what what Twitter is is a collection of users right it's journalists it's politicians it's entertainers it's scientists that's what makes it valuable is that you have all those people that that the advertisers can advertise to and if Musk is going to drive those people away from the platform then that seems like a big problem don't you think or where where are you at on this George I'm really curious
0: Uh, I don't I I I really don't agree with you first of all uh, I think that uh, having a blue tick is meaningless now anyway I have had a blue tick for many many years and I had a television show made by Associated Press and carried on the now banned RT channel and I never had a label calling me Russia State Affiliated Media. Right. When RT was closed down and my show ended, I then got a label uh, saying I was Russia State Affiliated Media, which Which wouldn't have troubled me uh, overly. Yeah, Uh, it wouldn't have troubled me ordinarily, Uh, but of course it it comes with almost complete suppression. Of my output, my lawyers uh, estimate that some 88% of my now 444,000 followers never see a tweet of mine. So
7: I, I, re- uh, I rarely I see a blue your tweet, though so I can confirm it, that.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. Uh, and it, so, therefore, my blue tick was meaningless. The company's losing $4 million a day. a day. You may well ask, I do actually, Michael, how a company that's losing $4 million a day can be worth $44 billion to buy. But hey, that is late capitalism for you. The people that he sacked are not the content moderators. They're certainly still moderating me. Uh, The people he sacked are the human rights team and teams for every kind of greenery and quackery you can imagine that why did twitter have them in the first place and the answer is that twitter became the property of the liberal classes it became the property of the chatterati the commentariat uh, the the liberals who regard anyone one step to the right of them as fascist and who regard anyone who doesn't swallow whole the latest thing, whether it's global warming or COVID-19 or the Ukraine story or whatever, as beyond the pill and people who should be silenced. So, um, as far as I'm concerned, he hasn't sacked enough of them. There's still too many man buns and man bags and skinny jeans and sneakers in the Twitter headquarters. Go, Elon, get rid of the rest of them too. Angela is in Luton on Imran Khan. Go ahead, Angela.
8: Hi, George, how are you doing? Um, Good show, great show tonight, actually. Um so oh, it's you. interesting <laughs> what you were saying about Imran Khan. Um I feel quite strongly that this um soft coup that was planned, um as, as Imran Khan calls it, the imported government that was brought in, that was the plan. That is it. Bring in an imported government and I don't think there was an afterthought about Imran Khan, the fact that he wouldn't go away quietly, the fact that he would stand and fight for his country, and there wasn't a contingency for that. So these whole last six months have caught them off guard. Now, you rightly say he's been calling for free and fair election, which would be probably the first time in history of Pakistan for a free and fair election without any corruption. But despite the corruption, the the by-elections that have happened in their own backyard in Punjab, he has sweeped the floor clean, completely Completely swept them clean. So now there's, a, there's even more of a reluctance to call an election date. It's not going to happen until next year. You're coming into winter now. Um, and I used to think at the time, listening to you talk about it, that you know this this coup happened in April. How is Imran Khan going to keep the momentum up of people? Actually, it's the opposite. There's a complete exhaustion because. There's no politics like Pakistani politics, there's events happening every day, be it assassination attempts, um, video leaks coming out, um, you know, people being killed, uh, you obviously know about Osha Sharif, um, the the journalist who was martyred in Kenya. Um, So, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens hereafter, if and when he wins the election. He's got the experience of being in a hung parliament, in a coalition. He insists on coming back only if he gets a two-third majority, so he can call the shots. And he wants to be able to be above the establishment to the degree that he can make decisions for the country. Complete change um, for Pakistan. I I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Is it feasible, given the stronghold of the uh, military?
0: I really think that is brilliantly analyzed, brilliantly observed. This can end only in one of two ways, either in the martyrdom of Imran Khan. And that's a problem for uh, not just him and those that love him, uh, but it's a problem for the country because there's not two Imran Khans. Uh, When Benazir was uh, killed, uh, there were other family members. There was a clan. Uh, and, uh, and the Bhutto family has gone on and on and the son is now the foreign minister. But Imran Khan is not in that position. There's no second in command, so far as I can see, in uh, his party. Certainly no one with his charisma, his reach amongst the people. That makes him uniquely vulnerable to assassination, of course. Uh, it can only end in his martyrdom or his victory. Uh, It is literally victory or death for Imran Khan. Now, my money would be on his victory. My money would be on somebody in the armed forces, perhaps further down from the chief of army staff level, uh, who um, with a group of officers says, enough is enough. There will be nothing left in Pakistan if this uh, current situation is allowed to develop uh, either Khan will be killed and will be blamed, or Khan will come to power at the top of a revolutionary wave which will sweep all of us away uh, and so some Nasarite army officers uh, junior officers type group might well uh, step forward and uh, and take the reins but as I said, I hope clearly in my introduction, this will uh, change nothing, just the uh, the name of the person in the Prime Minister's House, unless it is accompanied by a radical reshaping of the state of Pakistan. You don't need a puppet uh, Potemkin parliament. You need a powerful president. You need a president who... Uh, commands the armed forces, not the other way around. You need a judiciary that is not bought and paid for. You need an armed forces that are not actually owned by a foreign country. You should take, as Pakistanis, uh, China as your model. If you had done so in the 1970s, if you'd bolted yourself on to China, look where you'd be today. Think about that. Instead, you bolted yourselves on to a United States of America that holds you in nothing but contempt where it even thinks about you at all. Wake up, Pakistan. Lester is in Maryland. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Lester.
3: Oh, thank you, George. Um, Yeah, I just, I hope I won't be crushing your optimism because you feel like, uh, I feel like you're very optimistic of the change of, what's going to happen. We know the Republicans are going to win and take a lot of seats in Congress. And, you know, 2024, maybe Trump comes back. Uh, But, you know, I I talk to a lot of people out here uh, in my community. And I've talked to a lot of people like who have been in the military, who are veterans. And a lot of people, when I talk to them about you know the concerns i have about going to war directly with russia and china a lot of them really do believe that the united states could win a war against russia and china together at the same time and you know i i can try to uh piece to their logic like say you know i mentioned like you know the united states kind of did already fight china in the korean war and you still lost you know and 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 you You pretty much lost every other war after that you and, and you think you're going to fight two giants who not only are they very old civilizations but China and Russia have seen the hardest uh situations they've been through it all they their their people are made out of hard stuff, and the United States never been tested the way either China or Russia has been and you know it doesn't matter what I say they they're, they're, they're just so heavily uh, consuming the propaganda that somehow our military is invincible, that somehow we're going to defeat both of them. And I feel like a lot of people in the community, it's starting to feel like it's a cult, you know, like a cult of uh, of people have just completely been brainwashed and they're prepared to drink the Kool-Aid full of uh, poison and commit suicide. It, it just feels that way. I don't know. I don't know if you're getting that sense now and Uh, I hope, I think the world is starting to realize that they gotta come up with a way to prevent uh, Armageddon from happening. Because if you're hoping for the US uh, citizens to save the world, then you might as well be hoping that uh, pigs can fly.
0: God help us uh, with your neighbors, uh, Lester. God save us from them. God strengthen you in the uh, lonely fight to uh, force them to see sense. Uh, the uh, the obvious problem is uh, that these uh, mad ravings of your neighbors uh, can only be shown to be mad uh, by a war, a thermonuclear hypersonic intercontinental World War III, and none of your neighbors would be alive to see how wrong they were. None of us would be alive to see how wrong they were. That's the utterly tragic paradigm into which we are now trapped, that the lunatics have taken control of the asylum and that the lunatics outside, the sheep outside are so easily corralled and marched all the way to the slaughterhouse. I've lost count how many general elections there have been in Israel. The only thing certain about the outcome is who would lose. And that is the Palestinian people living under now permanent occupation by the state of Israel. But it was mildly interesting to me uh, which individual would be uh, leading the Knesset, forming the government. I did not expect a landslide victory or what passes for one in the neck-and-neck races in Israeli elections for Benjamin Netanyahu. Neither did I expect that Netanyahu would form a government and he'd be Mr. Nice Guy, at least by comparison with his cabinet colleagues. To explain it all is the renowned Israeli columnist writer from Haaretz newspaper. And as I say, In my view, the greatest living Israeli. He is, of course, Gideon Levy, and he joins us now. Uh, Is it unremitted bad news from the election, Gideon, or were there there any rays of sunshine visible on the horizon?
9: I wouldn't say a sunshine. Good evening, George. Thank you for having me. I wouldn't say sunshine, but it's not total darkness, because what happened now that maybe the masquerade is over. Once Israel will present its new government, the real face of Israel will appear and nobody will be able to claim that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, that Israel is a democracy, that Israel is practicing the values of the West, that Israel is the outpost of the West. I think that uh, the, the results of those elections are not as tragic as some of my friends see them, because they had torn all the masks, and here we are, and that's the real face of Israel. Yeah, it is a uh,
0: depressing uh, truth that uh, the uh, the the nicer the lipstick that was always uh, there faintly visible has all been wiped off now, hasn't it? The the uh, the various. Uh, liberal uh, political formations that ran, they didn't make it into the Knesset, am I right?
9: No, it's worse than this, George, because for many years now, what is called the Zionist left was the nice face of Israel, but it was a fake face. And in many ways, I prefer the truth of the right-wingers on the hypocrisy of the so-called Zionist left or center left, which which had nothing to to offer, not in terms of leadership and for sure not in terms of alternative, being an ideological alternative. The the real fact is that elections in Israel in recent years are a choice between extreme right-wingers and right-wingers. That's the real Israeli political map.
0: Yes, now let's talk about uh, those. For most viewers, uh, it's difficult to comprehend that you can get much more right wing than Netanyahu. But of course, we now do. We have the Kahanist uh, leader uh, who is leading, I think, the second or third largest uh, group and is the coming
9: power in Israel, isn't he? Yeah, uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir is his name, and he became the the black horse of those elections. Not surprisingly, he knew to become the third political party, as you mentioned, and the sky's the limit. He can even get farer. We are dealing with a party that in any European country today would be considered as a neo-Nazi party, not less than this. But in Israel, it became a very legitimate party. It will be part of the government. The media is quite supportive, or at least not banning them. And it's totally legitimized to have a neo-Nazi party partner in the Israeli government. I would think that this is unheard of. 20 years ago, it would not be possible, but now it's possible.
0: Now, from the foundation of the state and indeed in my early years, even I'm talking in the 1970s, my early years of involvement in this question, uh, Israel was punted as a labor country, had labor unions, the union's own banks, uh, the kibbutzim were labor socialist uh, experiments and so on. Now, labor having ruled the roost for a quarter of a century, the last time I looked, a couple of days ago, was slated to have four MPs out of 120. Uh, what
9: next for them? Look, they lost their way, they lost the leadership, and I think uh, just justice prevails in uh, sending them to, to the bin of history Uh, They used to be over 50 seats 30 years ago and they hardly made it this time when their partner Meretz, which is a little bit more to the left, even didn't make it and stayed outside the parliament. Those two parties had a quite uh, impressive past, but a very disturbing present in which they really lost their way. It's very hard to understand what do they stand for, What is their attitude toward the Jewish supremacy in Israel? What is their attitude towards building more settlements and maintaining the occupation? And as such, I don't think it's a great loss that they didn't make it or shrink to such ridiculous sizes.
0: So they've been passocked. effectively, Uh, they will now disappear Right. Uh, which, of course, uh, as recently as uh, as uh, Rabin uh, and uh, and and so on, uh, w- w- was unthinkable. It, it is a remarkable tectonic shift in Israeli politics, where Netanyahu will be the moderate, uh, neo-Nazi parties, as you describe them, uh, will be in the cabinet. That's going to be tricky for all these social democrats uh, around the world uh, who have uh, for a variety of reasons had to pledge their unending allegiance uh, to uh, the state of Israel or
9: is it? Will they just adjust in your view? I'm afraid so. Uh, The past told us that the EU and the United States are accepting almost everything from Israel and tolerating everything from Israel. Maybe there will be some condemnations. President Biden didn't call yet Benjamin Netanyahu to, to wish him good luck. But I think this is just rhetoric. By the end of the day, they will accept any Israeli government They will support any Israeli government, they will finance any Israeli government, and they will arm any Israeli government, at least for the short future. Maybe for the long run, we will face a different international reality, but for the short run, I don't see the world putting sanctions about Israel or taking any measures that should have been taken years ago. Now you and I both
0: know, uh, but not everybody knows uh, that the uh, so called peace process is uh, is dead and buried now uh, if it was not dead before it's six feet under now as a result of the election result. There can be no pretense anymore uh, that uh, that a two state solution as envisaged at Oslo, which I supported i freely uh, confessed to that uh, error uh, of judgment, uh, the, the, the peace process is over, so what's the rhetoric now, Gideon?
9: That's the point, that there is no rhetoric. Uh, the Palestinian uh, problem, the Palestinian issue is off the table, it's, was deleted from the public discourse in Israel people think that if they don't look at the elephant in the room the elephant will not exist, will disappear. There is no public debate about what to do with the Palestinian question and therefore there there are no solutions nobody deals with it, the world is sick and tired and has different issues to cope with like the war in Ukraine, like environment, and like immigration. And uh, the Palestinians, again, as you rightly said in your introduction, are those who will pay the price as usual. Now, let me switch uh, direction slightly.
0: Uh, We uh, both know, uh, last time we met, I think we discussed it, on a shared platform in in Kazakhstan. There's always been a complex relationship between Russia and Israel, and that has been reflected uh, up till now in the Ukraine uh, imbroglio. Uh, Israel has not wanted, for a variety of reasons, including Syria and so on, uh, to throw its lot entirely in with the West and the Americans and NATO against Russia. Uh, But this new government now, what will their attitude
9: be to that? I think that in this point of view there will not be major differences. Netanyahu for sure will try to maintain good relations as much as possible with Russia Uh, He is the architect of building the good relations with uh, Vladimir Putin and with Russia. And I think he will see, he will try to keep it as much as possible. The question is, what price will Israel pay for, for its unclear, vague choice in which Israel tries to gain both worlds and to be friendly with Ukraine and not to betray Russia, usually what happens in those situations is that finally you lose both. But I will show if Israel will be uh, able to continue to juggle, because what we are doing now is juggling between Ukraine and Russia, Netanyahu definitely will try to continue this. Who will be the foreign minister, Gideon? do you know? No, nobody knows uh, and it's totally unimportant because uh, uh, because Netanyahu will be the one who will uh, form the international relations of Israel. The foreign minister will be a puppet in any case.
0: Well, How do you attribute this incredible longevity of Netanyahu? Uh, winning uh, even when he seemed dead convicted in courts and so on what is, it, what is it about him? What has he got as a political leader that, uh, that keeps him not just standing but stronger than he
9: was before? So it's, 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 a, it's a quite long list of, of factors. I try to be short. First of all, he's quite an impressive man. I don't know if you met him, I met him a few times. He oh. is an impressive man. He is uh, very knowledgeable, uh, he's sharp, very intelligent, and he's one of those that uh, you cannot ignore when you get to a room, he will be always in the center because he has some kind of charisma, but that's not the whole story. The real story is that Netanyahu found a way to the heart of those who, who felt discriminated over the years in the Jewish Israeli society. Unlikely label who was always perceived as arrogant and as uh, quite elitistic, Netanyahu, who comes from a very elitistic background and very privileged background, still found a path to the heart of those who were always discriminated, namely the Jews from Arab states who are a majority in Israel. And they feel, even though he's not part of them, that he understands them, that he represents them. Netanyahu by himself felt for many years discriminated his father felt quite uh, excluded from the intellectual uh, milieu of Jerusalem, and all those emotions, because everything is very emotional here, all those emotions somehow are working on mainly the lower classes in Israel, and he's very talented to, to know to use it for his own interest and in a very successful way, there was never in Israel such a beloved Prime Minister and such a hated Prime Minister. But when he is beloved, he is really beloved by half of the people like no one before him. Gideon Levy,
0: stay safe and keep us informed. As to how things are going there. With thank pleasure, George, much. for joining us. Uh, but let's go to the phone lines. Aisha is in London on Imran Khan. Go ahead, um, uh, Aisha.
10: Yeah, thank you um, for giving me the chance to speak and for talking about this important issue and uh, um, Imran Khan, which is not being talked about as much it sh- as it should be. Pakistan is under a fascist government. Pakistan is being um, dictated left, right, center by foreign countries. Um, as we well know, it's America here. Uh, it's Joe Biden, who is the main character, along with dirty fishes in the army. Um, would like to touch upon the recent events. So uh, we've discovered that our army generals and, you know, these guys like to um, arrest people and strip them naked, beat them up and make videos and then, you know, blackmail them with, with those videos um, into doing things that they want them to do. And this is what's been happening. A Senate of Pakistan has been getting threats and videos of him and his wife, private videos being sent to him. What is this? He is a, he's an old man and this is what's happening. And this is being done by the army that Pakistan thought was, you know, the protectors of our country, the protectors of the people, the voices of the people. But now this army, these dirty fishes of the army, General Faisal, with, along with a few others, are making the whole country dirty and they want to strip the people and entertain themselves with this. They are facing the military tanks at the people. This is the state of Pakistan right now. We- no, it's
0: only by the grace of God, uh, Aisha, that uh, Imran Khan was not uh, killed. If you take four bullets in your leg, they might as easily have been in your uh, guts uh, or in your chest. And we'd be talking about a dead Imran Khan now. Uh, Just speculate, if if those bullets had killed Imran Khan, what would be happening in Pakistan right now, do you think?
10: I think there would be a hurricane in Pakistan, and the first to be attacked would be these army generals, these dirty army generals. Yeah. Because these are the main characters. These are the main characters of the regime change. Without these lot, this couldn't have happened. And we all know well who did this chief of army staff.
0: Yes, I I agree with you entirely. Unfortunately, not many Pakistanis have yet reached that conclusion or or maybe you think they have finally this week.
10: The thing is, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear in the people, which Imran Khan is trying to, you know, break down. These, These army generals, the army, the military are to serve the people they are answerable to the people we have all rights to question them and they have their duty to answer us we pay taxes the people of pakistan pay taxes and these law are not doing their job in fact we are getting threatened if we say anything about the army they will take us under custody they will arrest us they will strip us naked they will beat us up they'll get us killed as arshad sharif has been killed because he was exposing these people because he was questioning. It's now become a crime to question. Pakistan is meant to be a free, free country. It was made on the name of freedom, where people can say what they want, believe what they want, preach what they want. And now what's been done is the voices are being silenced. And if they can't, if they can't do anything, they will kill you. And this is what they're trying to do with Imran Khan, because he's, the, uh, he's a one-man army. He's a one-man show. That man is brave. That
0: man well, is our hero. Best call of the night, uh, or many a night, Aisha in London. Thank you very much. Lance is in Canada. Uh, he wants to fight with me about Joe Biden. Come and have a go, Lance. If you think you're hard enough.
1: No, my thought. All my. All I was going to say. My comment was that Trump provided one million percent media cover for Israel. Trump, in my opinion, did nothing for America, but talk about making America great. The one thing that Biden did do was, in the Ukraine and other places, capture capital for American corporations so they can add it to their stock market. So I suppose I view Biden as being 95% support of Israel and 5% support of America and Trump being pretty much 100% support of Israel. So I think there is a small difference there. I don't know not much of one. Uh, uh, well, but my question uh, well, to you, sorry,
0: you know, there, we can't look at the entire world through the prism of uh, seven million Israelis and seven million Palestinians. Uh, important <laughs> though those areas are uh, for me uh, and maybe for you, but they are not in the big scheme of things. All that there is, the the reality is, it's Biden that's dragged us to the verge of World War Three, not Trump. If I'm still
1: on, that's correct.
0: Okay, we've got, we yeah, you are, and we've got agreement. I like to end in agreement, well, Lance. Thanks, Lance. Let's go to Virginia and talk with Saad. Go ahead,
6: Saad. Um Hi there, Mr. Galloway. Uh, wanted to talk about the topic of when taking out a leader of a country or nation, uh, is it considered an act of war? Well, from the beginning of time, since ancient history, when leaders of a nation have been taken out by foreign powers, it's always been an act of war. For example, the World War I that was triggered by the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, the prince. And I was actually talking to somebody, uh, you know, about a year ago or two years ago, and I asked him this question. I said, you know, in American law, if the president of the United States is assassinated or taken out by a foreign entity or power, it's considered an act of war. And they said, yes. And, I said, and then I said, what about the inverse of it? If the leader of another country is taken out by the CIA or so, is it considered an act of war? And they said to me, no, it's not. You know, uh, it's not. And I explained to them a brief history about Zulfikar Lipoto, who refused to shut down the nuclear program. And he was, uh, quite frankly, hung after a military coup. And then Ziaul Hux plane that was blown up as it as it took off, uh, you know, in the 80s. And every other kid in, in Pakistan knows the story about these two uh, individuals and they were taken out. But all these things were happening in almost a 100-some countries by the CIA, you know. And um, people think that, you know, by, by the event of 9-11, these things had happened. But these things were going on even way, way before 9-11, even before the 80s and 70s, these things were going on. You know, how many countries the CIA has taken out their leaders and put in a puppet and so forth? More than half the world at least a hundred some countries. Yeah, so what would you... even, mm-hmm.
0: even even in Britain, uh, even in Britain, the Mike Pompeo was uh, very clear that the United States would not permit Jeremy Corbyn to become the Prime Minister of Britain. Go figure, as uh, Joe Biden's brothers would say. Speaking of Joe, here's another Joe in New Jersey. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Joe. Hey, George.
1: Hey, uh, Hey, power to the people! And uh, hey, I, I wanted to share with your, i wanted to share with your audience there. I—I I already know the election results, and it's—it's it's not hard to figure out. But uh, it's not a member. Of, it's not a, a matter of the Democratic uh, Democrat Party or the Republican Party. It's going to be the winners are going to be the Democratic Republican Party, as it always is. It's always the same party, the Democratic Republican Party and they've won every presidency since 1853. The, the last United States president who was not a member of the Democratic Republican Party that was founded by John, John Adams and, and James Madison has been uh, a member of either. Hey, I wanted to bring up a second point, George, on elections and on this whole uh, Nazi NATO thing, this whole one world order, this rules based order of authoritarian rule which in my opinion is the reincarnation of adolf hitler's goals dreams and aspirations of a one world order of authoritarian rule uh, a one world order a rules-based order that nobody got to vote for that's my question george when did the world's people when did when was there an election that was held all around the world and elected nato or the united states uh to rule the world. When was, when was that a choice for humanity? I'll leave it to you for the rest. Well, as President Francis Urquhart used
0: to say, uh, sotto voce uh, to uh, just off camera, democracy, it's so overrated. Uh, the idea that uh, anyone uh, voted for uh, the head of the Central Bank, the head of the IMF, the head of the World Bank, the head of NATO, uh, the people who rule the European Union, uh, the fact that uh, you can only vote for uh, one cheek of the same backside uh, in almost every uh, Western country in the United States, one of two uh, of the parties that have spent a billion dollars a billion dollars on the election and that no difference discernible difference anyway will be noticeable in the outcome if that's democracy you can keep it uh, so far as I am concerned you can change the name of the party but you can't change the policy and the policy is the dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy. And that prevailing orthodoxy is neoliberal economics at home and imperialism abroad. If that's democracy, as far as I'm concerned, you can keep it. Mike is in South Carolina on the U.S.
5: elections. Go ahead, Mike. Hey, George. Uh, good to talk to you again. I congratulate you again on the success of your show. Uh, I don't watch Jackson Henkel. don't listen to him, but uh, from the l- little bit of time I spent hearing him on your show, I'm certain that he's a Republican hack. He, uh, uh, he, he starts his, his show by giving actually a shout out. Actually, he's a communist, you know? Mike. I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> actually, he's a He's a communist. <laughs> well, well uh, he, he supports the Republican Party and the MAGA base, which he said he did. And he also gave a shout-out to them at the uh, beginning of yeah. his... Of his he, I, listen, George, I he think gave shout-out to them was, at the beginning
0: Yeah, I'll let you George. back in. I'll let you back in, Mike. But okay. you mustn't slander people by calling them Republican hacks. And when I tell you they're actually communists, just brush that aside as if that was nothing. Now, when he saluted the MAGA base... Perhaps he was saluting the working class of America, which overwhelmingly backed Donald Trump in both presidential elections, as the demographic polling shows. The fact that you don't want to see that, Mike, uh, may be more your problem than his. Go on. The floor
5: is yours. Okay, George, the the fact is uh Trump lost both elections in a popularity vote. So there's nothing is nothing, you know, that was popular about him. But but when uh uh Jackson was talking uh you know about this, uh he actually gave he gave a wave to the to the uh MAGA Base saying, If the elections are fair and free, well, you know he's just you know further solidifying these people's idea that, that the elections were not why, free uh, and, and that we're why, mike, but,
0: well Mike, are you are you really saying mike that there's never cheating in
5: american elections are you really saying that well george i'm saying that the elections that uh, under which trump lost were free and fair it, it was it was legitimated by well, the well that's court because you and, That's because, well, so was George Bush's
0: election. Did George Bush cheat Al Gore out of the American presidency? I know that you think he did. That's the problem, you see. You're in favour of some cheating and against... uh, Yeah, well, you're in favour of calling some elections cheats
5: and other elections not. Am I right? Right. No, as you should well know, the election of George W. Bush came down to only nine votes. And those nine votes were on the Supreme Court. And that's why he was the president. And that's why you paid the price of coming coming over here for your finest hour to, to testify before Congress because of the George Bush crime family. Yes, quite. And
0: we both know that he stole the election. So if Bush could steal an election,
5: why couldn't Biden steal an election? Is, well, first of all, Biden didn't have the resources put in place that, that Bush had with his brother in Florida when, when that state came up to be the, you know, the deciding vote in the election. And they stopped the voting. They stopped the voting in Florida. But the truth is Bush Mike, lost you're squirming in Florida. now. My, Mike,
0: you're no. Mike, you're squirming now. No election in the United States should be automatically regarded as free and fair.
5: You know that. Why are you now pretending otherwise? George, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there's never any tampering in elections, but I can tell you that of, of all the 60 cases that were brought before the courts after Trump lost this election, uh, the, the, his own judges, Trump's judges denied them, denied him. Do you understand that? All right, we've got, yeah, of course, we've got that you hate Trump,
0: and we've got that you hate Jackson, whom you never listen to, uh, except when he's on my show, and you thought he was a Republican hack, but in fact he's a communist. We've got that. What do you think is going to happen on Tuesday, Mike?
5: Okay, first of all, you don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday because uh, all of the early voting that's taken place before the election, it won't be counted until late Tuesday or Wednesday. So we're standing by waiting to see what's going to happen. And I can't tell you what's going to happen because I don't know. And I do live in the South where most of this controversy is about a lot of the candidates that are running. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the whole truth of it is we won't know until all the votes are counted. Just like, just like we did yeah, when prediction. Trump ran for president. We won't know me, until all give, the votes yeah, are counted. Give me
0: a prediction. Give, I know uh, we don't know. Uh, give, me a, give me a
5: prediction. I predict to you that, uh, that uh, the Republicans will take some of the seats in the House and possibly even one or two in the Senate, but it's going to be a lot closer. It's not going to be a red wave like people think it's going to be yeah
0: yeah we'll see how right or wrong you were and on line one is simon in london go ahead simon
4: Hello, George. Hope you're well. There's been uh, recently. There's been a lot of huge amount of blatant hypocrisy regarding the banning of Iran to the World Cup due to their alleged treatment of women. While some elements of the political and footballing world have also called for Iran to be replaced by, you guessed it, Ukraine, because Iran have allegedly provided drones to Russia um, before the current war began. Yet all the blood on the Saudi regime, including the blood of the thousands of Yemenis and that got killed in the recent war with the Yemen, and the blood of Jamal Khashoggi, who their crown prince ordered to be murdered in the most brutal and abhorrent ways, uh, forgotten and swept under the table. Now, do they, do the Anglosphere genuinely believe that the world is sold on the idea that Iran should be banned from the World Cup, or are they afraid that in this World Cup, two-thirds of the Anglosphere countries are likely to get utterly humiliated by Iran in two weeks' time? Remember that Iran are a great counter-attacking <laughs> counter- team. Some terrific players like Asmuna and Tarimi but also as you as you as a Manchester United man know they have a tactical genius in the mind of Carlos Quiroz and as a rule I myself have to support the underdog team and in this case I'll have to be rooting for the Iran and I I won't be able to contain my uh, my, uh, my, happiness as soon as Iran score when I'm working, watching this game in front of work colleagues you know.
0: Well that's the second best call of the night Simon and as a Scotsman I'm hoping that Iran does really well in the group stages of the World Cup. And what's more, I think that they will. Hats off to Carlos Quiroz and his, uh, his uh, team, which I think uh, will not be banned, despite the efforts of the so-called Iranian opposition to have their own country banned from the World Cup. Thanks for the call. Uh, G
11: is on the line in Leeds about Israel. Go ahead, G. Uh, I've been watching this uh, crisis with Israel and Palestine since the Second Intifada in 1983. And quickly, you can see the brutality of the Israelis upon the Palestinians on the Intifada. So I supported the Palestinians since the Second Intifada in 1983. Now, the two state solutions is always going to be, uh, how do you call it, an us or situation. Because uh, Israelis will never accept the Palestinians, uh, Palestinians will never accept the Israelis. So you're always going to have this this hard hard ground between both sides. But my my suggestion, which I put on to, uh, which I su- suggested to my MP, which he, he ignored, is to totally scrap Israel, which he was shocked. Uh, totally scrap Palestine. Um, because Israel was made by the British, Palestine was uh, made by uh, King Hadrian H- the Roman emperor. emperor, emperor. So if you scrap both states, have a new state called the Holy Land, which is always referred as a Holy Land, then both parties can accept that new state and uh, accept each other, whether the Jewish, Christians or Muslims or any other ethnic groups can accept a new state. Because people are so entrenched by the old culture and traditions, it's easy to say that. Then, to implement it, there's so much bloodshed uh, on each side, and so much cultural and national, uh, what say, um, uh, sovereignty on each side. It's really hard to do. Please put on the table and put time to, for people to think thinking that 2 states solutions will, will, will never work, maybe with Israel or Palestine, that would scrap both of them, have a new state for, for everyone. Okay.
0: <clears throat> well, at least you're thinking, uh, G, which is more than most people are, even though your thoughts are somewhat utopian. Uh, thanks for the call, though. Chuck is in New York on the same subject. Go ahead, Chuck.
5: Yes, hi, George. Thanks for everything that you do. Uh, I'm calling regarding... The U.S. discussing always that whether Russia's controlling the election, China's controlling the uh, election. The Democrats have used the Russia thing for so many years. But when it comes to Israel, they don't mention that foreign country having huge influence on the U.S. elections. Either party and the millions that are spent by them uh, trying to get people that support Palestine out of office and not into office um, is really disgusting Uh...
0: no thanks Uh, first of all it's not their money they're not spending any money on the US elections its supporters of Israel no doubt Uh, but it's not Israel itself Israel takes money from the United States it doesn't put any of it back in Uh, the reality is the American people have only got themselves to blame Uh, If they allow themselves to be led by vested interests, whether the Israel lobby, which is overwhelmingly a Christian evangelical lobby, I remind you, uh, half of America's Jews are opposed to Israel's policies and to Netanyahu and his governments in particular. More than half, actually. Uh, It is uh, Christian evangelicals that provide the votes and the money and the backbone for that Israel lobby. Or the military lobby, or the Ukrainian uh, lobby, or the anti-China lobby, or the anti-Russia lobby. It's the American people themselves that have to take the blame and the responsibility for that. Israel doesn't control America any more than any tale ever controls the action of any dog Israel is the tail of the American dog and the tail never wags the dog uh, Paul is in Sheffield
6: on Pakistan go ahead Paul hello George yes it's Paul um, I wanted to compare um, Pakistan um, with Bangladesh now I could kick you out with a complete set of clothes made in Bangladesh and imported into this country Now, I won't mention mention which retailers, unless they're going to advertise on your programme, of course. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I can't get anything from Pakistan other than mangoes. I can get the yellow mangoes in this country from Pakistan, and that seems to be the totality of their exports. And, you know, I I think Imran can.
0: yeah, I'm... yeah, I mean, it's a bit unkind. Uh, there, there is a fair bit of manufacturing in, China, in Pakistan. Much of it goes to China. Uh, much of it is based on Chinese capital. Uh, but you're right, uh, the, uh, the sweated labour of uh, Bengali children uh, does produce a lot of clothing uh, for the British market in particular. However, let me say in defense of Pakistan that the Pakistani kitchen is now the national kitchen of the United Kingdom. It's not fish and chips, it's not uh, eel and, uh, and uh, mash, it's not uh, pie and mash, it is Indian food which is not Indian and the restaurants are owned by Bangladesh is overwhelmingly, but the food is not Bangladeshi. The food is Pakistani. It's Lahore. Lahore, one of my favourite cities in all the world, is the best kitchen in the entire world, and it has made its cooking, its tastes, completely hegemonic in the United Kingdom. Go to in any town or village Anywhere in the United Kingdom, from Land's End to John O'Groats, you will find a restaurant and many takeaways all providing Lahore cooking. And so uh, I myself will never lose my uh, love for Pakistan, uh, even if I can't buy the product of their children's sweated labour. But Pakistan has to change. And one of the ways it has to change is to put forward a better foot, a better face to the world. And that face cannot be uh, a face of military coups and uh, the overthrow of government after government after government, the criminalization of the last government by the next government, the pursuit into exile of its uh, political leaders, the passing down of the torch of power within families from fathers to daughters and sons, and so on. So uh, many things have to change in Pakistan. But the most immediate thing that has to change is the removal of the American stooge government of criminals installed in the coup d'etat in uh, March, I think, of this year. Now, a lot of people have noticed that a criminal called Matt Hancock has gone into the jungle, not to commit kiri, but to make a shed load of money. Now, I don't look forward to seeing Mike Hancock in the jungle. I want to see him in the dock, on trial, for crimes against the british people for crimes against the health service for crimes against the dead in COVID, for gross negligence and corporate manslaughter of thousands tens of thousands of people due to his mishandling of the nhs when he was in charge of it the secret cameras that will be on him all the time in the jungle will be as nothing to the secret cameras that brought about his downfall as a politician. And some fools have compared his appearance in the uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here jungle adventure uh, to my own decision in early, uh, late 2005 and early 2006 to enter the Big Brother house. There are important differences. First of all, my money went to the Palestinian children in Gaza. It's fair to say that Matt Hancock's will not. Secondly, he is going into the jungle at the nadir of his political career. I went into the jungle at the zenith of mine, when I had just triumphed against the labor party which expelled me over the iraq war and had been re-elected to parliament as an independent actor as an anti-war leader thirdly i went into the big brother house with a message to impart to the masses which watched the show hancock has no message to impart for him this is about being able to provide for the woman who left her multi-millionaire husband, more fool her, uh, to be his partner when he walked out on his wife and children in the aftermath of those secret cameras. I would not have eaten an elephant's scrotum, but I hope that Hancock chokes on a very large pair of elephant's balls. But if not, when he comes back, I hope we manage to put him on trial. That's all I've got time for, unfortunately. Uh, but I'll be back again on Wednesday, God willing, at 9pm UK time. Please come back for the midweek motes and bring another viewer with you. I'm here every Sunday and every Wednesday because it's the mother of all talk shows. Good night.
4: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS.